one demon, no way, we gotta have many of them boiling out onto the surface of this pouch of fraud. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we have walked down through Inferno until we are in the fifth pouch of the eighth circle, the circle of fraud, and we are amongst some of the most foul and idiotic creatures ever to appear in all of comedy. It doesn't get much more insane than what's about to happen. If you remember, we are standing on a bridge looking down into a pitch-filled pouch of one of the pouches of fraud, and we've seen a devil run along the escarpment, the ridge, and throw a center hooked through the Achilles tendon, down into the pitch, and then go back up for more. That's only the beginning of this incredibly silly and incredibly strange sequence in Inferno. So here we are, lines 46 through 63 of Canto 21. Let's get to it. The guy went under the pitch, then turned over and resurfaced. The devils who were hiding under the bridge hollered, We ain't got no place here for the sacred face. You probably swim with different strokes in the Circio. That's why, unless you've got a hankering for our grappling hooks, you don't want to let a bit of you protrude from that pitch. At that, they slashed him open with a hundred barbs, saying, You're gonna need to do your dances all covered up and grab its stuff, if you can, in the dark. It's the same way with chefs, who make their sous chefs use their skewers on a hunk of meat to keep it down in the pot rather than floating up on top. My good master said to me, so that it'll seem as if you're not even here, squat down behind that outcropping to hide yourself from them. Hey! However offensive they get toward me, don't get the jitters. I've got everything under control. I've already been through a scuffle like this before. We're going to stop right there with Virgil's confidence, or as we will soon learn, overconfidence in the face of a whole pack of demons lying underneath the bridge. We've got several things to do in this passage, including a lingering question from the last passage. Let's get to it. Here's our lingering question. Remember that demon who came down and threw the guy into the pitch? Remember that whole bit? Ran around the escarpment, had him hooked through the Achilles tendon or under it by one of his talons and threw him in. And then he said, I'm going back up to Luca for more because there's plenty more up there. Here's the question. What happened to Minos? What happened to that whole thing that when a damned soul dies, they gather on the shores of Acheron and Karen has to ferry them across and then they have to make their way, I guess, across limbo and finally on down until they meet Minos who wraps his tail around them. Remember that? What happened to that? What happened to that is a question about demons in Inferno. And so what I want to do is just table that discussion for a few episodes. I want to, and I'm planning to do, an episode on demons as a whole and as a concept 
in Dante's comedy. So right now, that whole problem of what happened to Minos and what happened to Karen and what happened to all the souls who were damned gather on the shores like the leaves falling off the trees and they have to get in the boat and go up. What happened to that? And how does this guy go up and get more? Does he bring them to Minos? Does he somehow just go up and get them? It's a larger question about the developmental notion of demons inside of Inferno. So I'm going to save that. Let's go on to the passage. At the opening of this passage, we have the guy going under. I'll read it to you again in a minute. Coming back, the demon's saying various things. And here's kind of what I'm working off of in the first nine lines. And it's a big question. How do you make blasphemy funny? If you are a super Christian writer, as Dante is, if your poem is about the conversion of the soul to God in the Christian context, how can you then play around with blasphemy and make it funny? Or is it really a matter of the fact that only true believers can actually make a joke out of blasphemy? Let's look at the passage and think that through for a second. It starts, the guy went under. So remember, he's been pitched down off the escarpment or off the crag or the ledge, and he's gone into the pitch. And then he it says, I translated it as turned over and resurfaced. You should know that there is a lot of translator issues with this turned over and resurfaced. Does he come face up or does he come butt up? I think he comes butt up. I think he turns over, he gets tossed down, he hits the boiling pitch, he turns over and he comes back up with his butt showing. I think that that plays out in the passage because in the next passage on the next episode, there's going to be a whole lot about butts. And I think it's also part of the joke here. But you should know that that's a translation problem and it bedevils translators exactly what happens in that phrase. It's kind of torqued and twisted. There are some translators who claim it's muffed in some way, maybe in copying editors, that there's a problem in it. There's others who, you know, are very clear. Oh, he comes, he turns over and comes face up, comes over and comes butt up. Why is that important? Well, because it's important for the joke that happens. So the devils are hiding under the bridge. We now find out that underneath where Dante and Virgil are standing on this bridge, there's a whole load of them. And they're down there under the bridge and they scream out, we ain't got no place here for the sacred face. What they're talking about is an ebony statue of the crucified Jesus in Luca. This statue was supposed to have been carved by Nicodemus, the man who comes to Jesus at night and gets the whole speech about how to be born again. It's supposed to have been carved by Nicodemus, except for the face. And the story was that Nicodemus carved this figure, fell asleep, woke up, and the face was miraculously finished. And somehow this relic ended up in Luca. If you want to think a lot more about relics, I can't recommend more Charles Freeman's book, Holy Bones, Holy Dust. This book is essentially a study on the way the placement of relics 
caused the political and geographic configuration, the historical, cultural, and even nation-state configuration of modern Europe. Uh, relic established trade routes, and relics are part of why the map of Europe looks the way it currently does with larger metropolitan areas, basically around relics. I take it here that the joke is that this guy has been thrown into the pitch, he's turned over, his butt's sticking up, and now they make a reference to a worshipped statue in Luca. This is about as blasphemous as it gets, and this is why I asked the question, how do you make blasphemy funny? You should also know there's a point made by Giorgio Varanini in a 1989 essay on Dante and Luca, Dante e Luca. Uh, he says that Lucan coins had this sacred face, this relic's face on them. And so when the demons say, we ain't got no place here for the sacred face, I want to come back to that in a second, why I translate it that way, we ain't got no place here for the sacred face, what they're saying is you can't change coin for us. Rather than it being a blasphemous joke about a relic and a church, instead it's basically, you can't do any baritry here with us, because we don't accept the Lucan coinage. I like it better, of course, as you well know, as blasphemy, because I think it just sits so strange in this most Christian of all poems. They say you probably swim with different strokes in the Sergio, a river near Luca, known for its summer swimming holes. So, you know, you gotta swim differently in boiling pitch. That's why, unless you've got a hankering for our grappling hooks, you don't want to let a bit of you protrude from that pitch. At that, they slashed him open with a hundred barbs, saying, you're going to need to do your dances all covered up and grab it stop if you can, in the dark. What they're saying is there's nothing to graft here. I mean, what can you grab in a river of boiling pitch? Nothing. And if grabbing at things, the the grab, the take, is the very nature of the grift, there's nothing to grab here. They're making fun of him. They're ripping him open. And I think we're supposed to see this all as funny. This is a typical medieval morality play. The demons are under the stage and they're calling out all bits of blasphemous and weird and strange and funny things from underneath the stage at the players on top. And soon enough, they're going to boil out from under the trap door at the stage and come up top. But not quite yet. We have a little bit more to do. So again, I raise this larger question, how do you make blasphemy funny? Because this is going to play out throughout Canto 21, 22, and 23. It's going to get more and more blasphemous, more and more vulgar. And I should point one more thing out. I've I've loaded the deck here a little bit by translating what they say, we ain't got no place here for the sacred face. The demons in the scenes that follow are going to speak in a very low, slangy dialect. And they're going to speak in very street language. Very low, very corrupted grammar in places. They're not going to speak proper English, the king's English. And so I've already got them going here by saying we ain't got no place here for the sacred face, even though in this phrase they're not speaking so strangely. And you'll note they also apparently speak as one, 
Which brings us back to that Venetian opening metaphor of people building a ship. They're all doing separate tasks to make one valuable thing, a commercial or military ship for Venice. Here, we have a whole group of devils all saying the same thing, which adds up to blasphemy and violence. They're not doing different things. They're all doing the same thing. They're all hooking their barbs and their spears into this poor guy in the pit. They're all raking him with them. They're laughing at him. They're making fun of him. Don't you wish you were back alive up top on the top of the world, swimming in the nice Sergio in the summer? They're doing the same thing, as opposed to that opening Venetian simile in which everybody's doing different things. Uh, sewing sails, mending the, the boards with pitch, creating the ships, fixing them in some way, nailing this, hammering that. Everybody's doing their own bit. Here, it's an inversion. Everybody's doing the same thing that adds up to blasphemy and violence. So let's look at the metaphor then that Dante uses to explain it. It's the same with chefs who make their sous chefs use their skewers on a hunk of meat to keep it down in the pot rather than floating up on top. You know, as a cookbook writer in my real life, I love this because, hey, I got a call out inside of comedy for chefs and sous chefs. The, the whole idea here, of course, is that you hold a hunk of meat down inside the cauldron or inside the pot because, of course, if it floats up at the top, the surface of the meat will get dried out and the bottom of it will get overcooked. So you hold down bits of meat inside of boiling stews. But again, two things. Note, one, food metaphors, food, chefs, sous chefs, or, or scullions, or kitchen help. Notice what's going on here, food metaphors. Remember, I told you food is going to become very important to the Malabolgia, to the evil pouches. Here again, more food. And two, proletarian idol. Remember, up at the top, all that Venetian mending of the ships. Now think, here's another lower class. No offense, chefs out there, but in the Middle Ages, chefs were not exactly of the higher classes. It's not like there were Ina Gartens running around, you know, living in the Hamptons and living their beautiful life. <laughs> it's hardly like that in the Middle Ages. This is, again, more of that proletarian discourse. And notice, again, this is a well-ordered social structure. Chefs and their kitchen help, or I said sous chefs. It's more like scullions or, you know, uh, just the, 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 the kids who help them in the kitchen. But still, nonetheless, this is an ordered society in which there's a guy in charge and then there's other people doing the tasks assigned to them. More proletarian idol in the face of baritry, a uh, sin, particularly of the upper classes. But there may be one more thing here that we should notice about pitch before we pass on to Virgil's piece in this passage. Augustine, ah uh, yes, that one, St. Augustine of the Confessions, has a great deal to say about pitch. Dante may be picking it up. In the Contrafastum, the work against the Manichaean her heretic, Augustine writes in Book 12 that pitch held together the boards of Noah's Ark. Augustine claims that the Ark was not made with any nails, but only with pitch, and that pitch 
represents Christian brotherhood. It's what holds the church together. If the ark that Noah sails over the flood is an allegory of the church, which Augustine thinks it is, then the pitch that holds the boards together is Christian brotherhood, fellowship, love. Thus, we see the fraternal image of the pitch in the Venetian simile of building the boat. They're all working together and holding these ships together that form the basis of Venice's power. And we see the inversion here of an infernal pitch that indeed sticks sinners into it, but is the very hellish reverse of Christian love. I think that Augustinian point is probably working throughout here. I think it probably helps us further see the Venetian problem at the opening of this canto in that long simile. And I think it's still going on and running under here because, again, we see well-ordered societies. We see Uh, what shall we say, homophonic societies amongst the demons where everybody just does the same thing and speaks in one voice. And then we see this kind of idyllic society on the side as a mirror to it all in which everyone knows their place. I know you and I can kind of squinch up on that, but everyone knows their place and everyone does their task. That's not my politics. It's what I think's going on in the canto. Now let's find out what Virgil's doing in the canto. My good master said to me, so that it'll seem as if you're not even here, squat down behind that outcropping to hide yourself from them. Hey, however offensive they get toward me, don't get the chitters. I've got everything under control. I've already been through a scuffle like this before. Okay, this is Virgil's confidence. I mean, Virgil, wow, I mean... Good grief, you know, don't worry that I'm, I'm going to handle this. You go hide over there and I'll take care of everything. This has a good parallel with the walls of Dis. Remember, Virgil blocked at the walls of Dis and Dante standing there alone as Virgil goes to consort with the demons as he's being yelled at from the walls above. Remember all of that. And there are echoes of that in this scene. And we should say that there are problems here. Notice Virgil says, hey, however offensive they get toward me, don't get the generous. I've got everything under control. I've already been through a scuffle. I translated it. The word in the Florentine is barata, which sounds a lot like baratry, doesn't it? I've already been through a barata like this before. Let's talk about this for just a minute. Almost all of the old commentators think that Virgil is referring to the last time he passed this way. Remember, Virgil has told us that he was conjured by the witch Erichtho to go all the way down to the bottom of hell and retrieve something for her not too long after he entered limbo. And thus, he knows the way down. Remember that backstory? And remember in Canto 12, this will prove important to us going forward, at lines 31 through 45, Virgil makes the comment that as they come down that scree-filled slope with the Minotaur standing there, that the slope wasn't as ruined as this the last time he came down. At that point, he saw something that he hadn't seen on his last trip. That is, the slope kind of collapsed into rocky rubble. We know from Virgil's own commentary 
that he thinks, and he's right, that that slope gave way when the one came down and pulled the other souls out of limbo. That is when the harrowing of hell happened, when Jesus came off the cross in Christian doctrine, went into limbo and yanked out all the Old Testament types. to use the Christian words, all the Jews who had been faithful but lived before Jesus. Virgil associates this ruin with that moment of the harrowing of hell, all of that stuff before. And most of the old commentators think Virgil's talking about this, that the last time I passed this way, I encountered these same demons. Don't worry about it. I know how to deal with them. I know how to handle them. And because barata is used here, which is a word that sounds a little bit even like the Florentine word for baratry, because this word is used, Virgil's essentially saying, at least the old commentators say, that, hey, you know what? I've passed some coin here before, and I've gotten through this in my own way. Modern commentators, however, don't see this. Singleton, I think, is the first of the modern commentators who do this, but modern commentators think that Virgil is talking about his troubles in front of the walls of Dis when he is broken there and stymied by all of those demonic forces in front of the walls of Dis, and he's saved by that heavenly messenger who comes down across the Swamp of Sticks, waving his hand in front of his face to get rid of the stink of sticks. That guy comes down and saves Virgil, opens the gates with his little wand, turns around, doesn't even look at the pilgrim and Virgil, and goes back up. Modern commentators think Virgil is saying, you you and I have done this before, pilgrim. We've stood at a block like this with demons before. Don't worry about it. Why is it important to think, well, is it the walls of Dis or is it the last time he passed down? Why? Because of what's going to happen to Virgil. And we want to talk about that in future episodes of this podcast. But it's important to know where his overconfidence, as we will see, this is overconfidence, where it lies. But right now, let's just stop and think about Virgil in another way. We haven't talked about this in a long time, but I think this passage shows us that Virgil, the character that Dante draws, is a human. You remember early in the podcast, I made a lot of blather about Virgil as a human. There are ways to see Virgil as an allegory, to see him as a symbol, to see him as a literary device. And recently, we've been descending to that. We've been getting into Virgil as poetic master and the way that disciples treat their masters and they force them to rewrite their works. The disciples force the masters to rewrite their works and they work out their irritation toward their masters. And we've been kind of descending into Virgil as a literary device, a theological tool, um, unaided human reason. We've done this over and over recently, but I think that this is a good point to call us back to the fact that Virgil is drawn dramatically and wonderfully by Dante the poet as a human. Virgil is overconfident here for good reasons. His confidence here is motivated by his character, by what has happened to him. We can we can expect Virgil to think, hey, I can get us out of this. No worries. Why? Because he was honored in limbo. When he arrives back in limbo, remember all the poets honor him and say, oh my gosh, here comes the one who was gone. Come back. And remember he was in Canto 2 of Inferno. He was chosen by Beatrice. Beatrice came down to limbo and said, you got to go save Dante. He's 
honored and chosen by those up in the highest parts of heaven, and he's saved by that heavenly messenger in front of the walls of Dis. His confidence here is well-founded in the motivation of the character. And so Dante is drawing a person. And this is what makes Dante such a genius. It would be one thing to make Virgil a literary device, a sheer literary device. Let's say you can go out to the criticism and you can read essays from John Frecero, who essentially argue that Virgil represents a kind of Augustinian limits of the human psyche before grace. There are others who claim he's an Aristotelian figure, that he is basically, uh, how do I say, Virgil is to Dante as Aristotle is to Aquinas. There's a million ways you can read Virgil as an allegory of reason, as an allegory of the best humans can do on their own without divine help. But step away from it for a second. And just think about Virgil as a person, as a person character being drawn inside comedy. That shows us Dante's verge, cusp, edge of the modern world. And it also shows us Dante's brilliance. This confidence is well-founded given all that's happened to Virgil. And one of the guys like, I can get us out of this. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. About this scuffle with a million demons boiling out from under a bridge. I got this thing. Just go squat over there so they don't get you. That should automatically make you think, wait a minute. If you've got this thing, why are you hiding the pilgrim? It may be that Virgil himself even doubts his own confidence by making the pilgrim squat down over there. And if that's the case, then Virgil is even more of a human. See, Dante, he's got it in the bag. That is, people walking across the known universe, not just literary motifs. So what happens next? you got to come back. Those demons are going to, well, maybe I should put it in their dialect, them demons is going to come running out from under that bridge. <laughs> They're going to come up and face Virgil head on. And then the fireworks are going to start. And then poor Virgil is in for some problems. His confidence will prove to be overstated. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, give it a comment if you would. I would most appreciate it. Thanks for being on the journey with me. This is a fun set of cantos, 21, 22, and the early parts of 23. It's all high comedy. Well, maybe we should say low comedy. It's all low comedy. It's verging on blasphemy over and over again. It's just amazing that it's in comedy. I'll see you next time. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante.